Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Awfully glad we have this time together. I was reading Matthew 7 today, and it said, uh, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, and narrow that the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. If you are not right with God, oh, make it today. Be right with God. Don't uh, let it go another day. If God's knocking on the, the door of your heart today, and if you are... Uh, still undecided as to who God is and who Jesus is, um, get right with him. You can come to saving faith today through the grace of the gospel. That's my that's my prayer for you today. Just to get things started, I'm going to bring on Rob Bluey, the executive editor of the Daily Signal. And if you don't go to Daily Signal, I highly uh, encourage you to do so. DailySignal.com. They do incredibly uh, good reporting, full of integrity, and Rob's the editor. So Rob, welcome to the show. Hello, it's great Rob. to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I've been on Daily Signal uh, yesterday and today. You've got some great articles up on the uh, on the website, and I, I don't even know where to start. But uh, let's talk a little bit about just some of the economic recovery that we're seeing. What's your response well, to that? As you know, we have been talking about uh, the recovery for several months now. I think at the end of March is when the Heritage Foundation first had the idea, and we formalized our National Coronavirus Recovery Commission in early April so that our our country would be on the path. At the time, everybody said, you know, how can you possibly talk about this? There was so much focus on the public health aspect. But we knew there would be a time when Americans were ready to get back to work, and it seems in many states and localities, uh, the time is now. At least that's what the uh, the jobs report indicated. A record number of Americans, uh, 2.5 million new jobs, uh, the most ever in terms of the, the government's calculation of this. Obviously, uh, there's still a lot of people out of work, oh, and, of and our hearts go out to those, those individuals. But progress is being made. And uh, this surprised a lot of the economists. They were expecting the numbers to go up. And instead, uh, because some of those states have started to reopen, you saw these, uh, these new jobs being added. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's no question about it. And there's still some states that haven't uh, taken the steps. In fact, today, our National Coronavirus Recovery Commission released a map of uh, the 50 states. And we found that 34 states are, are in a good spot. But uh, you know those, those remaining 16 uh, still have some ways to go when it comes to reopening, uh, making telehealth uh, more available, uh, giving uh, local leaders the decision-making authority that they need. And so we're, uh, we're not going to rest, Bill. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Robert, are any of those numbers cooked? When you read those employment numbers and the encouraging number of jobs added, are those cooked numbers or are those, is that real data? You saw some liberal pundits like I Paul did. Krugman and yeah. the New York Times uh, call that into question. I actually know quite well the um, the person who directs the Bureau of Labor Statistics. He's a former colleague of mine at the Heritage Foundation, and he's uh, a, a tremendous individual who uh, comes with a, a, an incredible background in, in understanding this. But, Billy, you also have to understand that even though he's a political appointee of President Trump's, the the workers who are behind the numbers are all – 
career government employees. So, I mean, they don't change from an Obama administration to a Trump administration. Uh, they continue on and they continue to do this type of work to calculate the numbers. And so that's why you've even seen some liberal economists come out and defend uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and say that, no, the numbers aren't cooked. Uh, this is just uh, the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, they did make a, a correction, uh, but that correction would have applied to previous months, which would have meant the unemployment rate was actually higher in April. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's a positive sign that we're, we're heading in the right direction, uh, happening a little bit earlier than anyone anticipated, but, uh, but certainly uh, still a ways to go. I mean, there are still far too many people who are, are unemployed. And Bill, uh, it's something that, uh, that your listeners should know. We're also not making the incentive uh, to go back to work uh, much easier by, by giving uh, these employees a $600 bonus so they can actually make more money on unemployment than mm. they can if they were returning to their, their work. So uh, everything from the, the Paycheck Protection Program loans to, to that, uh, there are some areas that I think our lawmakers could stand to, to fix and improve to, to maybe make this recovery a little bit better. Yeah. I also just read that Bill Arnold is 82% better today than yesterday, but those numbers might be cooked too, but I'm going to go with it anyway. <laughs> well, I, I'm hoping that every day we're, we're feeling more confident and we're, we're feeling better about things. Uh, I'll tell you, this is the last week of school for, for my kids. Okay. And, uh, and I am uh, <laughs> hoping and praying that, that our, our schools are, are putting forward plans uh, for the fall oh. so that our children can get the the education they need. Uh, I give uh, many of these districts a failing grade. In fact, I give parents a lot of credit for the homeschooling that they've done over the course of the last three months. I think it's been incredible to hear some of the stories and to hear some of the collaboration. Uh, our parents, uh, you know, deserve a lot of credit. In my case, my wife, because I'm <laughs> certainly busy with my full time job, but right. a lot of people have made sacrifices to make sure their kids are still learning. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the coronavirus commission real quick because I saw a picture of fifty thousand people gathered. In in Hollywood to protest. It's amazing. Yeah. In some cases, the hypocrisy of the, the political leaders who uh, weeks ago were condemning and, and criticizing the anti-lockdown protesters for showing up in Michigan and other state capitals, uh, demanding that uh, some of the restrictions be lifted or, or at least at least not imposed statewide, mm -hmm. maybe make more targeted decisions, which is something we've recommended from the beginning. But you're absolutely right. Uh, they've greeted these uh, latest wave of protesters uh, completely differently. Uh, the media attention has been been, uh, completely different. So I think that uh, there are some people who are rightfully questioning, why is it okay for 50,000 people to gather in, in the streets and not okay for 50 people to gather in a church building for, for Sunday service, mm -hmm. um, particularly when the churches are taking steps uh, to protect the parishioners, uh, maybe no singing or at least uh, right. you know, spacing people out and and not passing the collection plate, doing those, those you know, common sense sure. things that, uh, that could hopefully reduce the the spread. Um, so I don't have a good answer for you. I, I, I would like to ask some of these political leaders uh, why they've made the decisions that they have. Uh, I think a lot of it is the, the wokeness and political correctness that uh, we're experiencing in our society. Mm -hmm. Has there been any new news from the Coronavirus Commission, which our listeners well, can go to coronaviruscommission.com? I have that right, don't we, I? We, you do have it. It's oh, coronaviruscommission.com. Mm -hmm. uh, great resources there, including uh, the map that I, I mentioned, uh, which will give a state-by-state -state breakdown of how your states are, are performing based on five key criteria that the commission has put forward. Uh, the next big, uh, next big event is Monday. We're going to be releasing our final report. We have a big event planned with uh, the Secretary of Labor, Eugene Scalia, 
uh, who obviously plays a pretty critical role uh, uh, heading the Labor Department. Um, and, uh, and we're excited to have some individual recommendations for the American people. So a nice. lot of the recommendations, Bill, have been focused and targeted towards government, uh, the private sector, and businesses. And we decided to put together uh, some really specific recommendations for individuals to take. I'm not not quite ready to to, to <laughs> release them today, but next week I, I certainly hope we have an opportunity to to discuss because I think that everything from uh, the steps that you can take personally in your own life uh, to helping others uh, will help us again lead us toward a path to recovery. Mm-hmm. Rob, there's been a lot of talk about defunding police departments, and what is your thought on that? There has. Uh, and, and certainly Minneapolis has been leading the way on this, uh, the site of uh, George Floyd's uh, death. It's, um, it's, it's concerning. Uh, I, I've got two things that, I, that I, I wanted to mention with regard to this. Number one, uh, we had a protest go through, through my quiet uh, D.C. suburb over the weekend, and, and I, I went out to cover it for the Daily Signal. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I saw one person who had a, a sign that said defund the police. A lot of the people weren't that extreme and, 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 and radical in, in their views. They, uh, I think, simply wanted to come out and support black lives. Uh, and I, I'd also make a distinction there. There are people who, who support black – who say black lives matter as a slogan because they believe it. And then there are others who support the organization which wants to defund the police. So I think that it's important for people to draw that distinction. It's also important to realize that there are political opportunists who are trying to capitalize on the protests and uh, and assert their political agenda. And I think that's exactly what you see going on with this defund the police. Um, you saw it right in the streets of Washington, D.C., where the mayor painted Black Lives Matter and in protest of President Trump. And then uh, the protesters came and painted defund the police. Uh, it, it's unclear uh, what, what exactly their long-term approach would be. It, it, I know in Minneapolis they've talked about the situation uh, not happening overnight, uh, so it wouldn't be that the police were gone uh, if they were to pass this. Um, but they also have a, you know, a veto-proof majority there. You have nine members of the city council who have said that they support this measure, I guess three people who've not taken a position, um, and the mayor who has said that uh, he doesn't support it. So that sets up a conflict, obviously, Bill. And it means that uh, you're, you're going to have a situation that probably makes its way all the way to uh, the Supreme Court or the other courts' uh, systems to, to try to figure out how this would actually work and what it would mean. Yeah, I don't know how well I paid attention in civics class, but when you say that there's a uh, veto-proof majority, that's a city council. Uh, doesn't the mayor or maybe the governor have uh, a power over that, or do they rule? You know, I, I, I would suspect it's, op- it's similar to the way that the U.S. Congress may operate with the president of the United States. So in that case, uh, the, the Congress would, would send a bill to the president's desk, mm-hmm. and if he vetoed it, they would have to come back, and two-thirds would yes. need to override the veto. So if the Minneapolis Council operates anything like that, uh, that would mean that the nine members, uh, if they're nine in support and three against, yeah. uh, they, would, they would be able to override the mayor's decision. Um, and of course, in many cases, the council controls the budget or sets the budget, so they can make other tweaks, even if you know they, it, it wasn't in, in that regard. From what I've read, uh, Bill, I mean, I, I it seems that the big issue is whether or not to have an armed police force. Uh, mm-hmm. You'd still need some sort of public safety. Uh, 
officials operating in, in some capacity. I mean, we can't just, well, I don't personally think we can just abandon police entirely, uh, and, and nor do I support that. And I, that's why I'm eager to see what these proposals look like uh, if, if we're to take them seriously. As you as you probably are well aware, Joe Biden, uh, the head of the Congressional Black Caucus have come out against this. The House Democrats aren't even going this far. So uh, it, it does seem to set up a, a a conflict, particularly within the Democratic Party, that uh, will likely be playing out over the course of the next few months, uh, and and it's it, it gives President Trump certainly certainly something to rally against as as he uh, as he looks toward November. So it'll be interesting to see how this debate certainly plays out. Some people have described it as a gift for President Trump because it allows him to par- make make that contrast uh, with uh, with his opponent. Rob, do you have a guess as to what percentage of president vetoes get overturned by Congress? Uh, I don't know the statistic offhand, but, but it's it'd a be relative, small. It'd be small, wouldn't it? It's a relatively small number. Yes, you're yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. But the fact that the three quarters majority could overturn a veto, I, I think that's interesting. I didn't. Normally, normally, what you would have is a situation where the president wouldn't ever want to be in a situation where there is that kind of standoff, unless they were trying to, you know, make a political point over it. Uh, you that that's where you get into the business of negotiating and trying to compromise. Although it seems that in some in some of these cases, there is no room for for, for compromise or negotiation, as you saw uh, with the Minneapolis mayor being uh, being shamed and shouted down uh, mm-hmm. when he took the position he did at that rally. Yeah. We'll take a little break. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. I always encourage you to head over to dailysignal.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. And right before uh, we went to break... We were chatting about school and how the homeschooling is uh, glad it's over this week. And I was thinking just about the fall, Rob, and I, I do really pray that kids go back. And I'm also thinking about uh, colleges and how how are how there's a great article by Heidi in on the Daily Signal about leading through the crisis, how college regents and trustees can steady the fiscal ship. A lot of universities are a little upside down right now. Oh yeah, no, they've they've uh, been hit hard by by what's what's going on, and it's um it's it's going to be tough uh, for them to to adjust. Let's let's not forget that you already had a situation where uh, the, things were changing in terms of people how are people were viewing college, and they were questioning whether it was worth the the expense given how quickly college tuition has increased. And the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of students are left with an enormous amount of debt afterward and, and just, to, you know, I think began, began to question whether or not it's all worth it in the end. So uh, the fact that coronavirus has hit on top of that has put a lot of institutions in, in a precarious position. Um, and uh, I, I'm not quite, I, I don't have kids who are quite at that age yet, but, uh, but one who is 11 and, uh, you know, will be soon thinking about college in, in the next five uh, years or so. Uh, you know, it is uh, it is something that's on on my mind as as well as parents think about you know saving for for college and and <laughs> and how um, how their how their children you know can be best prepared for the workforce afterward. You know, it's uh, it's those types of questions that I think we're grappling with. So it's a very interesting article on the Daily Signal. Thanks for pointing it out and and I think that. Um, 
you know, we 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 won't know all of the answers, Bill. Uh, probably even by the time that fall rolls around. Mm-hmm. But I think that what you're seeing is, in some cases, uh, you know, a, a, a difference and a gap between those who have have been thoughtful and prepared ahead, and others who were completely caught off guard by this. And uh, and unfortunately, it was my 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 public school system, or in the county that I live that uh, was caught off guard. And as we've talked about in the past, it took about six weeks to get anything decent up and running, uh, at which point, you know, a lot of the students, um, you know, probably at the older levels just stopped participating entirely. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, and I think that we need to have better solutions in the future. Uh, just like our workforces are adapting, we need our schools to do a better job of doing that as well. And hopefully by the fall, we'll also have some better science to, to know uh, how susceptible students, uh, children are uh, to, to COVID-19. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, came out yesterday with some alarming news that uh, asymptomatic uh, carriers of COVID-19 weren't uh, as likely to spread it to others. I know they came out today with some additional uh, cautious about that. But uh, we learn a new thing about this virus every day. And so the more uh, data and information we can have, I think the better prepared we will be, which is why it was so frustrating early on that China withheld so much information. Right. Because think about how much be- how better off and more prepared we would have been had they been uh, more transparent. Yeah, no kidding. And then the World Health Organization says three feet apart and no masks. And CDC says six feet apart and masks. You would think two big organizations on such an important topic would have something uh, in common, but they don't. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we um, we have been talking about uh, the importance of taking those precautions. Uh, as you know, our organization is, is led by a, uh, a black woman, Kay Coles James, mm-hmm. um, who has uh, seen and heard firsthand how the, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on, on African-Americans. Uh, the numbers don't lie. They have been hit hard. There's a number of factors for that. Um, Mrs. James put out a public service announcement uh, to, to urge that community to take uh, the safety precautions. We just released a new uh, public service announcement in Spanish from the Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, uh, which, uh, which, you know, spoke to the Hispanic community about the, the risks uh, that they face as well. So, uh, Bill, I think that it's really important that uh, we all play our role. I'll tell you, as I was out and about um, uh, this weekend doing grocery shopping and other things, I, I would get to the front of the, the store and then I'd see the big sign in Virginia here where masks are mandatory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd kind of <laughs> be frustrated because I'd have to walk all the way back to the car. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I try to do my part and, uh, and certainly don't want to uh, inadvertently get anyone else sick. And, and keep my family safe as well. Yeah. Rob, let's talk a little bit about opening up uh, some of the hospitality industries and, and the sporting world. You know, I think of some of the events that we've had in Minneapolis uh, with the Super Bowl here a couple of years ago in the Final Four, and you think, is anybody, will there be any hospitality business or any big events coming to Minneapolis if we say we have no police anymore? <laughs> well, that's a good point. I hadn't exactly thought of it, but I do think that, uh, yeah, think about all the number of law enforcement that are required for major events and gatherings of that nature. Uh, that is a that is an outstanding point. Um, I, I, I don't know how you would pull it off uh, exactly. I, I do know for the time being that it seems that a lot of, uh, of the sporting leagues uh, have decided to move in the direction of, you know, fanless uh stadiums mm-hmm. which i i think is 
is probably a uh, a safe way to approach it, but uh, but not exactly uh, enticing for for anyone. Uh, the players don't get the adrenaline rush. The the owners don't get the the income or the revenue that comes with uh, the stadium uh, merchandise or food purchases, and the fans lose out because they don't get that experience that uh, that many of them will, will go on to cherish. I mean, so many great memories I have as a, as a kid going to Pittsburgh Pirates baseball games with my family, uh, and the experience that I've tried to give my children here in Washington with the Nationals. So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a, a challenge, Bill, and and I think that we're all still trying to figure it out. I think in some cases. Uh, it's disappointing to see the disputes you have between the players and the owners. I mean, it doesn't seem like Major League Baseball can can figure anything out. And I, I, I question whether or not it's even even wise for the National Basketball Association or the National Hockey League to even attempt to resume the season. Maybe just throw in the towel and come back in the fall uh, when you can start from from scratch. But, um, you know, I, I admire them for, for trying. I think it's worthwhile to take the effort. Uh, but, uh, yeah, unless you start soon here, Bill, I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a point where... Where, where the fans are are, are going to tune out and, and maybe look for other alternatives, golf being one of them. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think your point's so well taken. I mean, the, the summer baseball is, is so fun, and it always uh, paints such a wonderful picture of, uh, you know, seeing dads and sons in the stands, and uh, to have that uh, go away for a year, you know, no one's going to, everyone will survive, but I'm just saying it's, it's, a, it's a great passage of, of summer that I hate to see go away. Well, I, I, you know, Bill, I, uh, I have uh, for the past ten years run a a fifteen k road race in uh, in Utica, New York. My dad has run all all of them, over forty of them, wow. since the the race was founded. So it's a it's a great family tradition. They've postponed the race until September, September thirteenth. It was supposed to be the day before the Boston Marathon. And yet the Boston Marathon has already decided to cancel, uh, figuring that it couldn't make things work. So I am hoping that the Utica Boilermaker goes on as planned. But uh, I realize that there are challenges to doing a road race as well, even if you, you know, do it in staggered uh, start points and, and whatnot. So a lot of things uh, being impacted uh, in, in the sporting world. And I think that uh, one of the recommendations, I'll give you a tease, is that we, we need to figure out how we can continue to exercise and, and maintain our own personal health uh, throughout all of this. Uh, we can't let ourselves uh, be isolated in, in home. Uh, it is summer. Let's make sure we get out and, and get that exercise and, and, and eat well and, and do our part uh, so that we don't have our own complications later on. Yeah. Speaking of your parents, Rob, are you going to be able to make a trip to go visit them with the kids? Well, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see them very soon here, uh, either maybe this weekend or next, uh, whether we go there or, or they come here. And uh, yeah, maybe for Fourth of July, we'll we'll make a trek. So uh, you know, it's uh, Father's Day's coming up, so it'd be great to see my dad uh, for for that occasion <laughs> and uh, and and celebrate together. No kidding, and and uh, happy early Father's Day to you. Uh, how is your little daughter Grace doing? She's Savannah Grace is doing oh, Savannah wonderful. Grace, that's what I meant. Grace she, is her middle name. She, yeah, she just turned nine months old, and uh, we are now experiencing the uh, the mobile <laughs> <laughs> the, the mobile child. Yes. So crawling, crawling everywhere, standing up, uh, you know, trying to explore everything in the house. So we need to get some baby gates very soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rob, I appreciate uh, you doing the show as always, and I will look forward to uh, talking to you uh, next week. Thanks, Bill. It's yep. always a pleasure. Rob Louie's been my guest. He is the executive editor. The Daily Signal. Head over to DailySignal.com. DailySignal.com. Coming up next, disaster psychologist Jamie Ayton is going to be joining me. And he's got some uh, pretty powerful stuff. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. 
glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Jamie Ayton. He's a survivor, researcher, and psychologist. I love that combo. And he is uh, wants to help people in churches around the globe through crisis. I would say uh, he's the perfect guest. Jamie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, Bill. Yeah. You are... Uh, your knowledge and experience, and uh, uh, it's right in the perfect wheelhouse of what's going on in the world right now. You know, it's been very unexpected to see <laughs> how all these different pieces have been coming together and just all the challenges that we're facing now. Yeah, there's um, so much emotion going on right now, and uh, here at Faith Radio, I, I just always want to stay in, in the lane. How do we glorify God? How do we uh, serve the King? Um, how do we look at whatever's going on in the world and uh, use it to His glory? Absolutely. I kind of know that's your heartbeat, too, which makes me uh, happy. But how are you processing the events of the week? Well, um, actually, our institute just hosted a panel today looking at issues of racism, uh, the church, and the current crises that are happening. And then also have been continuing to focus on how to help the church prepare and respond further to COVID-19. I would love to hear some of the things that were discussed Well, some of the things that we were focusing on was looking at trying to help Christians have a better understanding of racism and ways that we can all play a part in combating racism and how to be the hands and feet of Christ to a hurting world. All right. When you look at what the Bible talks about in 1 John 3, uh, it's in 1 John 3, verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, and you know that uh, no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. It seems that uh, when we start to talk about racism, what I always see first and foremost is is just hatred in the human heart. Yes, I, I would agree that we're having these biases toward other individuals, and also, too, that some of the systems that we live in are also biased and racist. Okay, I'd love for you to say more about that. Sure. Just thinking about some of the social economic systems that uh, continue to keep individuals um, oppressed. So, for example, last night I took my two oldest daughters and we did a uh, faith walk uh, with others that was organized here in Wheaton to be able to lament the recent uh, deaths and to be able to address racism. And one of the things I was explaining to them was that because of our family and my type of job, my wife's employment, some of our experiences, that they have other privilege and that how being able to walk to them feels like that's a way that they can make difference. But I also challenge them to think about what if we grew up in a place where mom and dad weren't able to get jobs that paid the way that they do? What if we weren't able to send you to the schools that we send you to? What if I often felt hopeless and you grew up feeling hopeless and that everything around us kind of supported that idea that it would be hard to feel like you could make a difference at a time? Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the church's role in addressing the social problems? You know, I think we really have to start making sure that we don't turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the social problems that we're encountering. And one of the individuals I was hearing this morning um, share on this was talking about how we really need the church to be the church and to stand up for those who are vulnerable and marginalized and to do what we can to not only provide spiritual support, but also to provide physical and emotional support as well. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I know there's never going to be a, a place of total equality in the world. I, know, I, I would love that in that utopian world to, for that to exist. But there will always be people uh, who are going to come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different um, energy levels, different uh, desires to achieve, uh, different paths and choices they're going to make, right? So if somebody decides to, instead of going out to this party where they're going to smoke dope, I'm going to actually stay home and, and study. So how, how do we sort that all out? Well, I think a lot of it is going to start both within our, our homes and our communities and being bare witnesses of Christ. Let's see, how do we present the gospel with clarity and not get lost in the, in the side debates? Because I think there's a, a, lot of, a lot of talk going on right now that's very distracting. Yeah, I'd have to agree. You know, one of the things that we've been working on for the last 15 years and that I've been studying is the interconnectedness of different needs that people have in the event of uh, adversity. So specifically, I've been doing a lot of research looking at what people go through when they go through a major disaster like COVID-19. And one of the things that we found was that our uh, social needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, our um, safety needs, that they're all interconnected. And that when we're able to help a person in one of those areas of their life, that it can have a positive impact across their entire uh, overall spiritual well-being as well. And so one of the things that I think that we could do is to start to really meet people with where they're at and to be able to share both the good news and also to be a good neighbor to those that are hurting. Mm-hmm. I know uh, a while back, Jamie, you wrote a blog about t- to sit in suffering with others. I think there's a new crop of people uh are suffering right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we saw in research prior to COVID-19 was that presently that our country is reporting higher levels of loneliness than ever before in terms of since we've been documenting it. But so if you can imagine that there was already in many ways a pandemic of loneliness before the actual pandemic hit, that now this has really heightened that level of emotional distress for so many more people. When you talk about loneliness, I think about the fact that the, uh, we're not meeting um, in churches, and I'm thinking some of the side effects of the loss of that community is just going to further make this loneliness uh, issue uh, more significant in the lives of so many people. Oh, absolutely. You know, I did a study after a mass shooting in Oregon a number of years ago, and I've also looked in disaster zones around the globe. Um, And one of the things that we found in all those different situations was that positive spiritual support. So, you know, being able to come together in community, feeling loved by our community in Christ, that that's directly related to a person's emotional well-being. It helps to protect them and buffer them from trauma symptoms and even managing anxiety and depression. Yet, ironically, with uh, COVID-19, that coming together in a physical sense is what puts us potentially at risk for contracting uh, COVID-19. And so it's been both a challenge, but I've also felt very encouraged by the way that I've seen the church step up to the challenges and to find new ways to create um, social connection. And like others, I'm eager to be able to be back worshiping with my community, mm-hmm. but also working with uh, the church that I'm a part of, too, to help think through how do we do this in a safe way to begin reopening? Because as we all know, the church never closed, just the doors to our buildings. That is so true. Now, as a, a disaster psychologist, I find that there's 
so many people who are being proactive. There are people out uh, sweeping the streets here in Minneapolis and gathering groceries and helping the people who are so vulnerable. I would think the impact of this trauma on them is going to be significantly less than the people who um, may not have that instinct, may not have that spiritual um, instinct to get out and want to serve others. Most certainly. And in fact, from a research perspective, one of the other things that we have seen is that by serving others, these acts of altruism and providing care for others does actually help to improve well-being and reduce distress, even when we might be impacted, that helping others is one of the ways that we can help ourselves. Mm-hmm. Jamie, how would you uh, suggest talking to your kids and grandkids about what's been going on this week? Well, you know, I think with both of these things, that as we're looking at um, both issues of race, and injustice. And then as we also think about COVID-19, I think the way that we approach these in some ways are very similar across those different topics. And with it, one of the things I would encourage parents or caregivers to do is to just ask their kids about, have you seen what's been going on? Or have you heard anything lately in the news? Or have your friends shared anything maybe on social media? Because more often than not, our kids are much more plugged in and aware of what's going on in the world than what we realize. And once you have a sense of what they know, to be able to try to approach this conversation in a way that is developmentally appropriate. So I actually have three daughters. So my youngest is 10, and then I have a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. And I talk to all three of them quite differently about these issues. Mm. But it's because I'm meeting them where they are that they have a different capacity and even who they are as people are ready that different uh, personalities even of trying to help them think through these things critically. Mm -hmm. So when we are in crisis, which I certainly feel like our country is in right now, as well as our cities, and we're not through this uh, by any means yet, what are some ways that we can encourage uh, the body of Christ uh, through crisis? I know for for certain, first and foremost, we need to just um, uh, hold on to our faith. Exactly. Cling on to our faith and, and hold on to our hope. And that's one of the things that the church can give that no one else, no other organization can give, that we can share the hope of Christ. And that's just incredible. Um, And, you know, as I think about the last several weeks or, you know, I think about my work, I've often joked um, uh, that after I'm done studying disasters that I want to study something a little lighter (laughs) um, at some point. But I had this one reporter ask me, well, how do you stay so hopeful um, and even find ways to sometimes – you know, you sound quite joyful for somebody who thinks around and sits about and thinks about worst case disasters all the time. But for me, the answer was simple. It's that hope in Christ and knowing that even through these difficulties that Christ is with us and that he's gone before us. Jamie, how important is it to make sure we're not trying to uh, be a cowboy and do this all by ourselves? Yeah, you know, I've got some uh, dear colleagues of mine that work in emergency management Hmm. and a term that they use for those cowboys, the folks that just kind of like jump in um, into the middle of a disaster. Sometimes you might hear somebody say that like parachutes into the middle of a crisis that they often refer to them as SUVs, which stands for spontaneous unaffiliated volunteers. I love it. And that uh, if volunteers can be well-meaning, but sometimes, even though our hearts are in the right place, our hands can cause harm if we're not careful. So the best way to volunteer typically is, one, is in a very small way, which is to just look around in your own neighborhood and to love your neighbor in the most literal sense of the way 
uh, possible. But then also for maybe something more in your community where you don't necessarily know the other individuals that you're wanting to serve is to try to get connected through maybe it's a local church, it's through a trusted nonprofit or organization, and to do some vetting and then to jump in with both feet. And also know that with the volunteering that especially with COVID-19 of what's happening there, that our communities are going to need us responding and helping now, but they're also going to need us even more later. So we want to make sure that we're wise in our volunteering, that it's not just when things are on the news that we're volunteering, but to look for places that you can plug in and make a difference for the long term. Mm -hmm. Jamie, when we look at what's going on and COVID-19 and everyone has to develop new patterns and habits and that should be something that we should be joyfully encouraging one another with. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is very fair. And, and it's also a huge challenge. You know, I, um, being a psychologist, I wrote a paper a while back about how going to church and going to our local businesses can be very different. And sometimes we don't realize that, you know, so like, for instance, I went to the local drugstore to pick up some medicine. I did not have the urge to burst into worship when I walked into those doors. I did not have the urge to hug, you know, the person who was checking me out. (laughs) But the first time I'm able to walk back into the doors of my church without even thinking it, I'm afraid that I could interact with others in ways that could potentially be um, uh, harmful to others without even realizing it. Or even just like... um, I was out the other day and realized that my I was feeling scratchy under the mask that I was wearing. And, and by the way, I'm, I fall into that. Even though I'm young, I fall into that high-risk category because uh-huh. I'm a stage 4 cancer survivor. Right. And so I have to be you know, extremely cautious um, with this. I fall into that high-risk category and um, was wearing a mask and didn't even realize until about halfway through the store when my wife said, do you realize you put your mask on backwards? And so when I had gotten in the car from one store, taken it off and folded it, didn't realize then the next time I got in the vehicle, I'd put it around the wrong way. So what, you know, the side that was supposed to be protecting me was now against my face. So we have to just be really mindful of those behaviors that we're uh, engaging in. Yeah. Jamie, I want to ask you about Christian liberties, but let me take a little break first. Dr. Jamie Eaton is my guest. Um, He's a disaster psychologist, uh, perfect guest for what's going on in the world right now. We'll be right back. I've had him on before. He's written a book, and, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But I really want to keep picking his brain about uh, what's going on with COVID-19 and some of the craziness of this last week. And I question uh, some of the Christian liberties. There's going to be some believers that are going to feel differently about certain things. 
Like some are going to want to be wearing masks and some are going to want to stay isolated. Um, and we're going to have different reactions to this. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the things that I would try to focus on when we're talking about these issues, so for instance, uh, the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, we've released a number of new resources on helping churches to prepare for the reopening process. And so if you go to reopeningthechurch.com, you'll find a website that we've created with the National Association of Evangelicals, where we're providing a lot of helpful resources and guides to help lead churches pastors and even church members through this process. And one of the things that we should have online this coming Monday will be a couple of new decision-making tools for not just the church and church leaders, but also for individual church goers. And so to help members to be able to think through, is this the right time for me to go back? And if I go back, how do I know that my church is prepared well? And how do I personally uh, take steps to prepare? And so I think we're going to really want to approach this with a sense of humility, because as you noted, there's going to be a lot of different perspectives. But my hope is, is at the end of the day that we treat this as a public health issue and not a political issue. Yeah. Now, in your book, A, a Walking Disaster, what, what Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience, um, I've, been, I've been super sensitive uh, through COVID-19 with all the health issues that are going on, but then also the other of people that have not been able to get to their appointments or have not felt safe or have had, uh, you know, routine things uh, canceled because of the the uh, pandemic. And as a survivor, what kind of feelings do you have for all the other fellows out there like yourself who are in a situation where you need to get help? Yeah, you know, getting help and sometimes asking for help can be challenging. That I've spent my entire career as a helper. And, you know, like I have this memory of Hurricane Gustav, and I had evacuated my family and drove up um, out of state and dropped them off and then was headed back in because I was supposed to help lead a team on the ground if Hurricane Gustav hit our community uh, for a disaster response team, that is. And as I'm driving back, I'm noticing all these other cars. Everybody else is leaving. And the only other person going the same direction I am every once in a while is like an emergency vehicle or a military vehicle. And I remember thinking, like, what am I doing? Have I made a poor career choice that I'm you know, choosing to drive back into this? Um, but that's who I am. I'm, I'm a helper. And so it was really difficult for me to suddenly be the person that needed help when I was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. And one of the things that I remember that really stood out from that time actually was the, my college president here at Wheaton College who came to visit me at my home when I was ill and wasn't able to get out and uh, asked me what he could pray for me about. And I shared with him that one of the things that I was struggling with most was letting others know what I needed and how to let others help mm. me. And I'll never forget that he reminded me that we're all the type of people that need help. Yeah. Amen, uh, Jamie. That's such a smart word. So when we are in crisis, which I certainly feel like our country's in right now, as well as our cities, and we're not through this uh, by any means yet, what are some ways that we can encourage uh, the body of Christ uh, through crisis? I know for for certain, first and foremost, we need to just um, uh, hold on to our faith. Exactly. Cling on to our faith and, and hold on to our hope. And that's one of the things that the church can give that no one else, no other organization can give, that we can share the hope of Christ. And that's just incredible. Um, And, you know, as I think about the last several weeks or, you know, I think about my work 
I've often joked um, uh, that after I'm done studying disasters that I want to study something a little lighter <laughs> um, at yeah. some point. But they, I had this one reporter ask me, well, how do you stay so hopeful um, and even find ways to sometimes – you know, you sound quite joyful for somebody who thinks around and sits about and thinks about worst case disasters all the time. But for me, the answer was simple. It's that hope in Christ and knowing that even through these difficulties, that Christ is with us and that he's gone before us. Yeah. Amen. Uh, thank you so much. Um, any, uh, any closing thoughts uh, with my listening audience? Yeah, I think if you're if those are listening that are looking for resources to help uh, be able to prepare and, and to respond well to COVID-19, not just in terms of helping your church, but also of helping your neighbor to go to reopeningthechurch.com and also to be able to go to another website with lots of other free resources that we've created, which is at spiritualfirstaidhub.com. Mm-hmm. And would you uh, just close us in prayer for all that's going on? Most certainly. Dear God, we just pray for all those that are listening and just for our country and really all people around the globe right now as we're facing so many areas of uncertainty from the spotlight of injustice that we're seeing to the racial challenges that are happening in our country to COVID-19. Just pray for your healing and your grace and your mercy. Jesus Christ, most precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. Dr. Jamie Ayton has been my guest, and his um, website is Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, Ayton, A-T-E-N.com. You can learn more about him and his book and everything he was talking about on the show. So, Jamie, have a great day. Thanks so much. Take care. You bet. Coming up next, I'll be joined by Pastor Sean Winters. We're going to talk about suffering. There's been a lot of it lately, and there's going to be more of it, but there's always the condition in life where we need to go to God for our strength in times of suffering. When I look at Psalm 41, I go, there's lots of uh, reasons to rejoice. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go, with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. We've got a lot of reason to be absolutely joyful, be steadfast in the love of Christ, and to know that uh, we, are, we have him to journey with. He has given, um, God has sent his son to be with us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Such a powerful truth. And then um, a little bit later uh, next hour, uh, we're going to be joined by Jared C. Wilson. And Jared C. Wilson is a very interesting author, and he wrote a book called something like, what is it called again, Rebecca? The Gospel According to Satan. Yeah, that's it. Pretty catchy title. It is. You want my, you want my opine. That's a pretty catchy title. <laughs> you won't want to miss it. Yes. And what's the subtitle of that? Do you remember? I believe it is Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. Yes. And I bet you have heard all of them. And if they get repeated enough times, you start to think, hmm, I wonder if that's even true. And that's how you get deceived. I think Satan will be very patient with us. He will just sit and tell you the same thing over and over and over. If you don't put the truth in and not listen to the lie, that's where you got to stay strong in the word. So we're going to get a dose of truth next hour. We're getting a dose of truth. Coming up next, Pastor Sean Winters. And then in the second part of the hour... Jared C. Wilson. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Ted Ross with a Faith in Life Minute. Life after divorce is difficult for children. Tammy Doughtry has been through it, and she's written the book Co-Parenting Works, Helping Your Children Thrive After Divorce. Have healthy, godly people in your life who will listen, who will love you, who will be the guardrails of your soul, especially during the dark beginning of the post-divorce life, because none of this can be done alone. We can't do it alone as an individual. We can't do it without God. And we especially need our brothers and sisters to walk with us and to stay close in these, these times of pain and being very careful to pick healthy, godly people to be those standby, close, close friends. That's, that made all the difference for me in how I processed everything, was just knowing I had three people I could go to day or night that would love me, would listen, and who would also take all of these things to the Lord. More from Tammy Doughtry can be found at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.